Hi, my name is Tepelumbai from Johannesburg, South Africa. I really enjoy OnScript podcasts because of the many in-depth interviews related to biblical studies and theology and the many interesting people that you have on the program who do wonderful work to help us to understand the Bible better. And it's just a wonderful resource, wonderful way to get into the very topics related to the Bible, related to Jesus and the gospel. So I'm thankful for the podcast. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Professor Esther Akolatze, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and World Christianity at Knox College, University of Toronto. She is the author of For Freedom or Bondage, a Critique of, pa- of African Pastoral Practices, published by Erdman's in 2014, and Powers, Principalities, and the Spirit, Biblical Realism in Africa and the West, published by Erdman's in 2018. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with her about this most recent book because, I'll be blunt, there are very few biblical or theological academic resources that assume supernatural beings, demons, angels, etc., that they assume that they matter in our cosmology, at least in the West. This presents a problem because, well, Scripture does, Jesus does, the Apostles do, the Global South does. I know that y'all listening come from a wide swath of traditions in Christianity, so excusiology, or theology of the powers, and even a fully developed pneumatology, that is a theology of the Holy Spirit, might be more on the radar for some of you than others. This book helped me navigate through questions I didn't even know I had, and I say this as someone who grew up Pentecostal, who not only grants that such things exist, but has experienced things personally. So let's get started. Welcome, Professor Atkalatze. Thank you. Glad to be here. First, by way of introduction, would you talk to us a bit about how you understand the discipline of pastoral theology and the connections you make with your second area of expertise in world Christianity? In addition, would you talk about your journey into these fields of studies? Like, What led you to these, this specific combination of disciplines? Thank you. Uh, For me, pastoral theology is theology in aid of the church. It is theology done with the question of what it means to be church as its aim. And I think that we do the academy and the church a disservice when we forget that the academy is a child of the church. And when we do theology as if it were a separate discipline, that birthed itself, and we know no one births themselves, then we we make nonsense of of the whole project. And, And also pastoral theology is a moment in theology when the God we theologize about walks the lives of people. And where text is brought in conversation with context, and both are enhanced, enlightened and freed for the task of hearing and knowing God and being heard and known of God. And uh, for me to engage this task in global perspective, 
to refuse to allow the church to continue as if it's fracture into denominationalism and particular locales is its identity and end is what drives my need to carry on my conversations across cultures and across uh, the globe and to ask how the whole church might carry out the single mission to the whole world. And, and so my writing has always been like this, but, but I was somebody who uh, was pushed into a double major at the university by uh, professors who knew me as a singing evangelist in my day before I got to the university, and they thought, we think you can do this. So I did a double major that almost killed me in religion and psychology, so my brain learned to, uh, to process both things um, at the same time. But I think that it was Duke, uh, it was Duke's uh, uh, Dean Greg Jones and academic dean then, Willie Jennings, who first spotted that concern in my work. I had interviewed for a pastoral theology position, and when I received the contract, it had combined pastoral theology and world Christianity, you know, the major concerns in my work. And, and I think they were, they, they were right in doing that. So a global vision for me, allows us to expand our local mission, you know, rather than diminish it as we often think. So when people ask, how is it you're African, but you're looking at the West as interlocutor, this is the, this is the reason that when I think globally, it helps me even focus, you know, um, locally. And so this approach will help the church do its work and enhance the academy, I think. And I think now more than ever, with languishing churches and dwindling enrollments in theological schools, we need to pay attention to the call to a theology in aid of the church done in global perspective. So in short, that is how uh, pastoral theology and world Christianity hang for me. It, it, it's, it's more uh, theology in aid of the church and in global perspective. Yeah. Well, it's to hear you speak about how those things interact, and especially that um, there's a sense in which we think that in order to focus on, like you hear the global church, and it feels like, oh, it's everything that's over there, right? So it's really, it's interesting to hear you talk about how, well, yeah, of course, some of it is about distance, right? And cultures and contexts that are very different, but also how that spins around and is an intimate engagement with our like, with specific local context as well. Like they aid each other. It's not just us studying something over there, right? Well, let's jump into your marvelous book because I have lots of questions, as you know, because I sent them to you. <laughs> so your book addresses fundamental concerns that are much broader than what some might dismiss as particular affinities of, say, Pentecostals, right? So you situate your concerns about a diminished theology of the powers and the Holy Spirit within a much larger conversation around theologi the theological method and hermeneutics. So what spurred you to write this book? And what are the major concerns that you wanted to address? I, I, I think that you're right in... Uh... Uh, saying that often people associate 
talk of the Holy Spirit or what we call exosiology or the theology of the principalities and powers with Pentecostalism. As if all of Christian existence is not the womb child of Pentecost, but that is another story. Uh-huh, I love it. <laughs> uh, and, and the major concern for me was to wrest interpretation from the usual north-south mainline Pentecostal lines on which it travels in both church and academy. I wanted to bring us back to a serious discourse on the subject as a means to attending to what might be contributing to the decline of Western Christianity in a way in which the global South and Africa as exemplar may aid in that direction. How do we think about this? And a dialogue for me then in which the cerebral, often dry academic thinking of the West can be infused with a deep spiritual and affective but often thin theological reflection on practice in the South. And and I think that together these can provide the seedbed for vivifying the church. Because neither stance, you know, neither the the, the stance of, 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 of the global South or or the, glo- or, the, or the North is a reflection of the church God intended, you know, and we can't have one segment's interpretation be the standard for all. And then everyone else is kind of jumping off of it or... Exactly. As my people say, the first mouse is a mouse. All are just another, oh, here's another, oh, here's another, you know. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't want, we, we don't want that kind of, yeah. So it's also the unity of the church, you know, is a stake for me in this task as well. Yeah, and I felt that through throughout your book. There was a sense of, um, I really appreciated this, a sense of, of um, clarity and, and just sort of drawing these very particular, like saying, saying the quiet part out loud, as it were, like, no, no, the West does not have the corner on Christianity. <laughs> um, in fact, no section of the world um, or theological persuasion does. And, and you articulate this throughout the book and the sort of the different traps that Christians can fall into. And you've kind of already hinted at this, that on the one side, Christians of the global South can emphasize the powers so much that there are demons everywhere. Um, and, and I caught a piece of that, right. In growing up during the heyday of the charismatic movement, the nineties and such, there was a lot of like, Oh, I tripped and it must be the devil coming after me. And I'm like, girl, you just tripped, (laughs) you know, sort of thing. So demons everywhere. Um, And you call this an extreme supernaturalism. And then, and then on the other side, represented by the global North, Christians can de-emphasize the powers and the Holy Spirit so much that Christians end up in what you call a monism that privileges a rationalism that you argue quite convincingly, by the way, that leads away from speaking biblically. Would you describe each of these traps? And so we can get right into some pastoral theology, how you've seen these traps negatively affect the church. Yes. I mean, if you put it simply, if you asked a question, for instance, can we expect 
manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our day? Can we expect miracles to exist today? Can we walk into a COVID-19 ward and and lay hands on people? For the global south, the answer is a resounding yes. God breaks into ordinary life and tinges it with the supernatural. And not only is God's breaking in and breaking through expected, but Satan and his minions are seen everywhere, controlling human affairs so that the Christian lives in a hyper-vigilant mode. You know, as you pointed out, you know, we adduce spiritual causes to everything. And this is what I mean by that kind of uh, extreme supernatural naturalism in which there is a constant and ending war between God, Jesus, and Satan, which God wins on account of his being omnipotent. And this is also what I mean by extreme dualism, as if God and Satan are apart. We sort of forget that one is creature still. You know, God is not in a toe-to-toe. It's not like even a a heavyweight champion and a featherweight champion in a boxing ring, you know. It it is, you can't even think like that without bordering on uh, on blasphemy. And and that is the kind of extreme supernaturalism and, and, um, and dualism. Because that is not the biblical account. These are not lordless lords, as Bart would say. They, they are under control all the time, and they are creatures. And, and then in the West, we make no room uh, for the supernatural. You know, uh, Bart will say that we behave as if, even if they are, uh, uh, they are either inebriated, you know, and can hardly affect us in, in, in any way. And so we have this tidy theology that is, for me, morality laced with a veneer of spirituality. And we pay no attention to the scriptures about principalities and powers as real. And it does harm to us, you know. So neither the extreme dualism of the South or the, what I'm calling the monism, as if there's only God, you know, and not, and not the devil, you know, is an anemic theology and, and gives us this anemic faith because I don't have to come to church. I tell people every day, I mean, you say your prayers. You don't really pray because while you're praying, you have a few, you may be asking God, give us daily bread, but you have a loony or a toony or a dollar. You can go to Mickey D and buy from the dollar menu. That is not really prayer, you see, because you have resources beyond that. To, to, to believe that I have a need that only outside resources can meet is when we start talking about, you know, a power that is out there. So we need freedom for the, from the constant hypervigilance and also freedom from, uh, from belie- behaving as if the powers are not. Yeah, that's, that's good. I, it's really interesting to hear... Um, you sort of lay these two things out in the book and also just here, because I think there's a sense in which um, you, in doing so, you demonstrate the need that the church has to be in unity because we have to help each other (laughs) in this space. Um, And I think a lot about why 
some of these choices have been made, like why the hypervigilance? Um, I think because even some of that dualism, you see some of that in in the West. I think a lot of, um, you know, some of my listeners might be <laughs> remember Carmen from the 1980s and his like famous The Champion song where, uh, where you know, it was uh, Satan and Jesus going at it. You mentioned boxing ring. So that's what made me think of this. Um, and, and oh my gosh, every youth group I went to for years, like, you know, performed like a like a skit of this on stage and it was only much later that and I always felt so like yeah Jesus beat the devil but then I realized why are they in the same ring (laughs) (laughs) they shouldn't be in the same ring um but then at the same time people say they are not co-equals exactly and then and then on the other end of that sort of a sense of if you if you even talk about the demonic you know somebody looks at you like you're nuts and that that's not even a possibility or just kind of dismiss those passages in scripture. Um, and so it seems like there's kind of oftentimes the choices between, well, you can't look at this biblically. You have to uh, look at this very extremely, either from one perspective or not. And I think that's where your book really is, is very helpful. So um, I want to move into... Um, this section here where you, because I want to hit on this hermeneutic a little bit more because it was, it was such a powerful section uh, in the beginning of your book when you, um, in order to help us interrogate and reframe our implicit hermeneutic, you chose a few salient interlocutors that alternately help us identify problematic assumptions and also construct new frameworks that help us be more faithful readers and witnesses. And you've already noted Bart a couple times. We're going to come back to him. <laughs> uh, so you frame your chapters as dialogues with specific interlocutors. And I really appreciated this approach. So let's begin, as you do in your book, with someone who can help us with a new framework. Is it Quessy Dixon? How do you say it? Yes, Quasi. Quasi. Mm-hmm. You present him in conversation with and as a crude, uh, critique of Rudolf Boltmann, which, who still really looms large in biblical hermeneutics, even if he's kind of dismissed, right? Uh, I recognize I'm about to ask a, a huge question, uh, so take your time on this if you would like. Would you introduce our listeners to this important African theologian and lay out for us why a vastly different approach in biblical hermeneutics is so needed. Um, yes, Chrissy Dixon, uh, my own uh, Old Testament and African traditional religion professor from the University of Ghana. And uh, for me, the choice of him was a no-brainer. I have to confess that uh, when I was in secondary school, what you call high school, all of us used uh, Chrissy Dixon's books on uh, religion and um, history of Israel. And actually, we ended up calling the, the, the trilogy of books we had to read from Old Testament to New Testament Chrissy Dixon. It was just simpler just to say Chrissy Dixon. And as a young evangelical, I couldn't understand why he was writing the way he was, because for me, Uh, The aim of biblical studies was to let people lose their faith because we had two accounts of this and two accounts of that and, you know, two accounts in Genesis and David's introduction to court, all of those things. So I came to the university vowing never to, you know, befriend religion department. But now I look back uh, to his work, especially his work that I engage uh, theology in Africa 
And I, and I find that here is somebody who takes scripture much more seriously than I ever thought. And somebody who takes scripture in its context, as well as the context in which he is trying to let interpretation work seriously without letting one outdo the other. So that worldview doesn't overshadow scripture and scripture in a sense, doesn't overshadow worldview. And, and I found in his work a, a way to engage hermeneutics in a way that valorizes neither, which then frees scripture to be scripture in which, in his own words, God is heard to address everybody in every culture and every space. And as somebody who was trained both in Africa and the West, because this is an Oxford grad, he knew best how to speak with the West in mind as well as Africa in mind. And his analysis of African religio-cultural world and how that influences Christian theology and how he brings those two important aspects of contextual biblical interpretation together, for me, was in direct opposition to how Boltzmann had done this work of using uh, context, moder modern context, to look at scripture. Because in Quasi Dixon's hands, context and text went hand in glove and actually freed each other so that people could hear God address them. In Boltzmann's hands, we see how worldview overshadows uh, text. And we find him making a larger claim for modernity and for what modern humans needed than modern humans claim for themselves. So that at the end of the day, you have... A, a, a scripture uh, with no teeth, you know, that bites no one that you can't bite with. Right, because he was concerned, Boltman was concerned with, oh, we, I, uh, wanting to make scripture palatable in, in some ways, right? Um, and, and you have this critique of his demythologizing, of the biblical text. I'm going to quote a bit from your first chapter here because it was, I read this section and it, it yeah, I'll just read it and then I'll, <laughs> so here it is. Uh, this is from page 52. Boltman's primary thesis is that there exists an enormous gap between the modern worldview and the biblical worldview and the leap of faith it requires to read and believe the testimony of scripture is inaccessible to modern human beings with their scientific worldview. Thus, the mythical component of scripture becomes its bane in attempting to reach modern humans, Boltman argues. And since the purpose of scripture is that it may be believed and faith may work redemption in the hearer, it is only right that the elements that hinder their hearing and believing be removed so that the kernel of the message, the salvific work of its central figure, be accessed without the myth that bogs it down. The intent of scripture to bring all peoples to faith and to recognize the lordship of Christ will thus be fulfilled in this way, end quote. Now I read this 
And as a Pentecostal, I thought, well, of course not. Um, I'm so glad she's addressing this problematic approach. But what struck me as I was reading your section on Boltman was the presumption in his approach as to what was believable. What I quickly, quickly realized however, was just how often I've directly or implicitly dealt with the impulse to downplay or cordon off the reason, uh, the realism of the text in the academy, in churches, and even in my own reading or prayers. We add provisos, because if I could be blunt, uh, because I know I've believed this at times myself, the biblical text is embarrassing in its spiritual supernatural realism and is thus in need of our patronizing explanations or an air of what uh, you use the term respectability. So I'm going to be thinking about this for some time, uh, but to give our listeners a taste of what I experienced, would you lay out for us what this uh, demythologizing is and why it's so problematic? Well, simply put, it, it is to take what we assume to be uh, mythic content from, from scripture. The, 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 the things of, in our minds, uh, the, the things fairy tales are made of, uh, the things that we cannot believe as people of science. As uh, Boltzmann will say, you cannot uh, use a light bulb and still believe in ghosts because there's a sense in which if you use hurricane lamps, you might assume, oh, uh, shadowy figures are ghosts. But as soon as you turn your fluorescent lamp on, of course, the shadows disappear. And that is how he sees scripture, that all the mythic content, which boils down to miracles, which boils down to uh, exorcism, which boils down to anything supernatural, anything that is otherworldly, has to be stripped off scripture before we can understand and believe it. So, so, so that, for instance, um, uh, you, uh, epilepsy might be the simple reason for for, for calling something demonic because the, the physical manifestations are the same. And what is problematic about demythologizing is that it behaves as if we are called just to believe what scripture or some script has placed in our path. It forgets that Christians are called to believe with the disciples, the apostles of old that uh, it's 2020, but our belief is still embedded in over 2,000 years ago. And it behaves as if the vehicle of transmission is not as crucial to the message as, as what he thinks is the, 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 the kernel of, of the message. And then it behaves as if within scripture itself, as biblical scholars would argue, some demythologizing was taking place, what Brevard Charles will call broken myths, that it knows when it is speaking in saga, in myth, in, in history, and uh, other literary forms. So to, to do the kind of demythologizing that Bultmann invites us to um, is not tenable. And the truth is that uh, it, it, it is not for our embarrassment that uh, we should 
we should uh, strip scripture of what is germane to, to, to scripture. Uh, Christian scripture has its own grammar. And if you're Christian, you have to speak that grammar. We cannot rescue the Bible from embarrassment. In doing so, we strip the words of their transforming salvific power and then attempt to offer to a morally bankrupt dying world words that don't do anything. We tell them that God didn't do anything in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit doesn't give power today. And then we invite them to believe what? Modern human beings are not looking for an easier way to understand scripture. Scripture is a strange world. You are called into it by the power of the Spirit, and you're giving power to understand what the eyewitnesses said. So for me, content and mode of transmission have to coincide to make Christian grammar intelligible to Christians. Uh, church is not for unbelievers, I'm sorry. It has to be intelligible to Christians. And Christians must not cede their peculiar grammar, even at the risk of embarrassment, to another language. And this is my last point. Speaking anthropologically, we know that once your language doesn't exist, you don't exist. And that is, for me, the invitation of demythologizing. It looks nice and fresh, but it carries death within it. We know that Jesus appeared, as scripture tells us, to defeat the works of the evil one. And from A to Z in scripture, we see otherworldly beings traversing. We take that out and do our cut and paste, and what we will have is no scripture. That is the danger of demythologizing, that it looks nice, but it has no power. Yeah, that's a, that's a good word. And I, I think, too, there's a sense of when we, if we allow that to happen, if we do that to the text, there's multiple things going on where we're not listening <laughs> Right? We're not listening. We sort of wink at the apostles. Well, if, you know, Peter's shadow could heal people. Okay, Peter. <laughs> right? Like we sort of wink at it and go, well, that happened back then. Now it doesn't really look like that. Uh, I hear a lot of sort of excuses like that um, where it's almost like, well, if that's where you, if you start demythologizing, where does it end? At, at what point do you go, well, Jesus is the son of God. Well, how is that possible? Well, like, like it, it, you end up backing into central claims for Christianity really quickly. And at the end, you're doing a history of Christianity rather than being Christian. Yeah. So you talk about the need to reclaim myth or to remythologize and that we need myth and that it helps us read scripture to theologize, to be the church. So in order to help us in this process, process of re-mythologizing, you bring in Karl Barth into the conversation. So in your, it's in the fourth chapter, you state that, quote, Barth offers substantial theological insights for thinking through the complexities of the language of the powers and the place of worldview in their interpretation. So would you share with us some of those insights? Because it might not be uh, if our listeners have some engagement with Karl Barth, this might not be the area that they're used to talking about Karl Barth in. <laughs> so what are some of the insights that he brings to the table? I think for me, a key insight 
is his um, understanding of uh, scripture and worldview. And he says that if we look carefully at scripture, and Brevard Childs would say the same, that the Bible does not have a worldview. There is no particular worldview germane to scripture. That in actual fact, scripture uses and dispenses of worldview as, uh, uh, as it needs. So, so to constantly be thinking of worldview as uh, bound to scripture and thinking that the only way to understand scripture is to, uh, to enter into its worldview. And then, because we think that scripture is wedded to a worldview, if our worldview does not coincide with that worldview, then we will use our worldview to read scripture. It's totally, it's totally mistaken. And, 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 and so that, that is key for, for doing hermeneutics to think there is no worldview that scripture holds to. So you cannot be doing your arguments based inside what worldview is or is not. But, but when he begins to speak to us about the demonic, because of this consciousness of there is no worldview, he almost straddles two worlds. One, demons are not real in the, in, in the sense of tangible reality and demons as otherworldly real beings. And then he, he, he demonstrates how to speak of the demonic in what he terms the lordless lords and how they function in the cosmos. And he does this by staying close to how scripture, you know, speaks about them. He identifies and describes their presence and function. And he situates them first in the account of the fall and their consequence uh, for humanity. And says that first human beings in attempting to, to, to self-govern is how we find the, the, the presence of these lordless lords. As soon as we went from under the, 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 the divine authority of God, we opened ourselves to, to being governed by others because the freedom we thought we were acquiring is bounded by other spirit beings. You know, in psychological parlance, we can talk about addictions. First, it was you who loved the drink or the sex or whatever it is. Before you knew it, even when you didn't want it, it was calling and you were, uh, you, you were saying yes. And before you know it, your yeses and noes didn't even matter. And, 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 and these, uh, this is, in a sense, how the demonic works. But he doesn't leave it at that. He also lets us see these lords that seemingly have no real ontological relation to the reality of God or even humans, still have their purpose. And even though they seem to be shrouded in obscurity and they seem to come and go and have wraith-like uh, transitoriness. We, we know that they are there, and we know that in the lives of people who are bound by their nefarious activities. And we can have the danger 
that we see in the South by seeing them everywhere or have the danger that we have in the West by assuming that because they are wraith-like and uh, you see me, I don't see you, one moment you're there and you're not there, we might think that they are not there. Because each approach and each assumption gives them leeway to wreak havoc. And, and, and we see that everywhere. But what he tries to help us understand is that because they are creatures, they operate within the boundaries of God's omniscience and omnipotence. And when we start overvaluing worldview in the African or global South, then we forget that they are still operating within the bounds of God's omniscience and omnipotence, and we start fearing them. And in, sometimes I think the church is exploding in Africa because everybody has to be close to a man of God, you know, just in case a demon is coming. And we are not really discipling people. Or the other extreme, where in the West, you know, we see nothing. I saw a review of this book um, on, in Christian Century uh, where a pastor was saying, if we don't believe in the demonic and other spiritual powers. Is the gospel we are giving people enough for them to live in this world? Because we need four uh, dramatis personae in this, in, 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 in this arena. God, us, the world, <laughs> and Satan. Uh, we miss one and we can't make sense. And, and I think that is how bad helps us to to be freed from the hypervigilance, but also freed from the nothing is going on. Yeah. Well, that, that was really helpful. Thank you for that. So one of the most striking sections of your book for me was when you called out the paucity of resources and exegesis and writings on Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 uh, from an African perspective. So this is where I'm going to ask you to read a section of your book for me. Uh, so this is near the end. Um, so read this section for us and uh, reflect why on, after you read it, on why we need to talk about the real. Okay, so if I start reading from, this is page 195, The Powers in African Perspective. The muted tones that is the paucity of resources and exegesis and writing on these verses in the African perspective is telling. But it raises two questions that underscore part of the problem I am dealing with in this book, a problem expressed in the title. What we notice is that the cultures that are most vociferous and have the most to say exegetically and theologically about the language of the powers and their meaning are also the ones for whom it is absent in lived religious experience and expression. <laughs> the ones for whom it takes center stage in experience and expression in liturgy and worship are ironically the ones who give little attention to writing about the phenomenon and its importance for theological reflection. And I think that 
this happens, I believe, partly because a certain suspicion still surrounds the work of scholars who open up the realm of the spirit in ways that invite attention to it as real rather than unreal. Hmm. Okay, so I think I can end there. Uh, why is it that in Africa or the global south where we are living it, we are not spending time to reflect on the theological import of it? Maybe now in Pentecostal uh, theological writings, we are seeing a little bit of that. And why is it that in the West, we are all over it, uh, sometimes dismissing it, sometimes doing the voyeuristic work of describing it in, in, in other cultures? Because half the writings I see are people saying what is happening uh, on the other side. I think part of it uh, boils down to part of what you've already raised, this embarrassment we have about still believing what we should have outgrown. But if the, the Christian South and the Christian West will come together in what I am proposing as uh, an approach called biblical realism, if we will come together and refuse to let only one segment of the church speak to all segments. And we will say, this is what I have ex experienced. Can you help me reflect on it theologically from scripture? And the people writing can take seriously when we go and do anthropological research, we do participant observation and we suspend disbelief and we, we, we sit and learn from the other. And I think that is what the Western church needs to, to do. But it also is mandated to believe with the apostles. So it needs to check is disbelieving and the d disbelieving at, at, at the bar of faith rather than at the bar of philosophy and rationalism so that we can engage the real. I mean, we bandy around faith-seeking understanding, but I think it's just become nice words. But I, I also know how very easy it is to be caught in this. Recently, I was asked a question in Bible study about whether it, 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 it was on the angels visiting Abraham, whether I thought they were real um, angels. And how quickly did I say how uh, the Bible uses angel is the same word for messenger. So these could be, you know, some very godly people in town. I went for a walk, came back to take a shower, if I may talk about showers on the, uh, uh, in, in public. And then, like uh, a, a cinema, I saw three different scenes that occurred, you know, different decades of my life, just across, within seconds, that I could not explain rationally, except that I would say an angel showed up in each one of those. I almost fainted. So I said sorry to God, 
came back to Bible studies, wrote to the pastor and said, I have something to say. I have to correct my answer from the last week. And then I told them. And then people started sharing their stories of encounters like that that they could not, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm glad you shared that about because there have been more times than I can count of God speaking to us in the shower. I asked my mom about that years ago, and she Born said, of the "Do you spirit. think it has <laughs> and water? <laughs> There's something about the yeah. something about that process that uh, like it's an opportunity for the spirit to to speak." And 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 it's so true that uh, when space is made open for that, there's a like. It, it kind of boggles my mind because the fact that those experiences and just even thinking about God engaging with us, or just sort of largely speaking, the spiritual realm engaging with us um, as being peripheral to Christian experience, it's definitely not because as you, as you just explained, it happens all the time, but there's a sense in which we just don't give space for learning what that's about or, or, uh, hearing from others. So we tend to dismiss experiences that we might've had and, and on, and so we might miss beautiful things, right. Or on the other side of that, we experience something that we don't understand and it leaves us in fear. And if we don't have anybody to help us through it, um, then we're missing, uh, we're missing an opportunity for discipleship and an opportunity for someone to see the power of the spirit in their lives. So now we're going to shift gears <laughs> to our speed round. So these are very fast questions. So just your immediate, immediate response. And then I'll come back with maybe one or two questions before we end. So are you a morning or a night person? Night person. What place in the world have you never been but would love to visit? Asia. Anywhere in particular? Bangkok. Ooh, love Bangkok. <laughs> my, actually, my best friend's family lives there, so I, uh, I've been blessed to be there. It's amazing. So I agree. What is your favorite holiday tradition? Well, here's where my culture is showing. You know, I count days in market days, so I don't... <laughs> I don't have any. Um, when you say holiday, you mean Christmas and Thanksgiving and those things. Oh, it can be. It can be however you would like to interpret it. Mm, favorite holiday tradition. Mm, every day is a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never given that a thought. I, I don't really care. I, I think that I, I just like hanging out with people and being silly. So any opportunity for that, yes. Wonderful. Tea or coffee? Tea. Mm. What's the most significant book in theology from your perspective in the last 50 years? Hmm. You don't have to like it, just like significant. Wow. You think that as a quasi-theologian, I would have something. (laughs) Don't worry. I've asked everyone, uh, most people this question, and almost everybody goes, oh, (laughs) I don't know. Significant, something that you you would say that, I mean, in this book as well, I have engaged uh, uh, Jack Levison. And I think that I'm fascinated by the attention he's um, given to to the work of the spirit, uh, even though I disagree with much of, of what he says. 
uh, <laughs> uh, the other day he, he sent me a note to say thank you for engaging his work. And I think that is work that I may continue to to probe and look at. So I would say all the work is done on the spirit. Okay. What is the most recent work of fiction you've read that you couldn't put down? Oh, pers- is it pers- it's, 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 it's a, a book uh, on the election of a pope. Why did it just, I can see it, but I can, it's not perfect. If you're like me, if you read something on your Kindle, you forget what the title is. (laughs) Yes, you know, and and this one I also listened on. Oh, yep. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, but it's it's the election of uh, the, well, it felt like it was the election of the recent Pope. And the surprise at the end that it, it, it was really a female. Oh, interesting. And nobody knew. But the the previous pope had said, yeah. <sighs> oh, that that sounds like a fun, yes, a, a yes. fun spicy read. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. but nobody knew until the very end. I mean, he he uh, he was such a gentle soul, and then he came out to that. Wow. And what is not clear is whether he, uh, it was a transgender, but but yeah, hmm, it was a Filipino. Wow. Mm. So what's one idea in theology that you think needs to die? <laughs> <laughs> Your whole book might be a, dis- a discourse on this. <laughs> I think the idea that myth is dead. And, 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 and in a sense, uh, demythologizing. I think that needs to die. Because we know it's not true. When I sneeze, you say, God uh, bless you, because I have escaped from the hands of the evil people who were taking my soul away. That's why you say, bless you. <laughs> Isn't it funny how some myth <laughs> is part of our lives, even if we... <laughs> yeah, the myths we <laughs> no live by. No matter what we do. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So one more major question for you. Through your your book, you advocate throughout your book, you advocate for a shift in the center of gravity and how we do theology. So I'll quote one of the examples that you offer in the book. Here's a quote. If the momentum of theology, its study, its written legacy for the church has always found its greatest expression where the church exists in its vitality, see examples across the church's various epochs and from Jerusalem to Alexandria, It is imperative that we pay attention with ecclesial and academic seriousness to the theology that is evidenced by the life of the church in these regions, especially in Africa. Reading scripture with such people in mind might not only open up possibilities of growth for the church in the West, but also offer possibilities for dialogic encounters that seek to bridge the gap in interpretation and understanding of scripture and offer both the Western and Southern church the foundation of living into their common identity as those who declare about themselves that they are of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, awaiting one hope. So I loved this quote. As a pastoral theologian, can you talk a bit about the possibilities in store if theology happening in ecclesial spaces becomes fundamental to the, to theology as we see it in the academy? I had proposed um, a way to do this in faithfulness to church and scripture. 
uh, as uh, a biblical realism, uh, where scripture reads scripture and done in communion, so that even if I am far away in my holy village, I am thinking of the church in its universality as I try to ask what is going on in this text. We know that scripture reads situations and sheds light on the situation in pastoral practice. But the situation also continually helps to clarify the scripture because the situation opens up the scripture for us and says, ah, what this verse was talking about is what I'm seeing in this moment. And that is how the moment, the situation is, is clarifying uh, scripture for you. And then allows the theological work to be done afresh. So even though we say we have a canon and it is closed, we keep doing the theological work afresh as the scripture speaks to the situation, as the situation clarifies the, the scripture uh, for us. A good example might be marriage, remarriage, and what we see in, in, in Genesis. By the time I have refracted uh, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder through my uh, tradition, which is closer to the uh, Mediterranean uh, Hebraic culture, I am seeing how divorce is impossible. I didn't show up at, at my marriage, my traditional marriage. It wasn't about me. It, 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 it is two families come together. So how are you going to talk about divorce in that? You know, some court might give you a piece of paper and you can take it away. But what God has put together, let no man... So, 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 so can I show the West what it means to say that uh, our blood is mixed? Look at those children. You can see one day you say, oh, it looks like that. Oh, tomorrow it looks like... No. Can I show the, 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 the West what it means to say what God has put together, let no man put us under? It's not possible. You can't take your spoon and take out your DNA from the child and, you know, go away. You know, things like that. And, and, and if we read together, what new things uh, can we see? It, 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 so the text contest dance continues, aiming always at freeing so that the text addresses us and letting people hear themselves addressed by God. It is, it is freeing the word and maybe even God. You know, because sometimes I think that our interpretation boxes God into his word and says he can't move from within the structure that we have put together. And in pastoral practice, we see clearly how the situation frees the text. And if the academy will learn that, we can have fresh theology for the church and a sense of of engagement right yes. where there's not these mm -hmm. these significant walls and and oftentimes very dismissive mm -hmm. responses oftentimes the academy's response to the church is to kind of brush it off and no, you can um, brush off and, your and, mother you know, on certain you know certain <laughs> traditions depending on who you know which 
part of the academy you're talking about, yes. right? Like mm-hmm. certain certain sections of the academy like this tradition, but not this one. And there's a sense of of kind of walling oneself off from those other ones and not dealing with them. Um, and we in can that, do that. Mm-hmm. We can do that. We have to listen carefully to everyone. And that's that's a work. It is. <laughs> Sounds like we need the Holy Spirit to help us with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> you see, because it, 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 I think that God set us up so we can't do this life by ourselves whether it is physical life, because we are seeing it in this moment of COVID, you can't do life by yourself. And you can't do Christian life, especially by yourself. I think God has set us up. But one of the things I've learned in my little life, and even doing this, um, that we can stop protecting scripture and stop protecting our little theologies. Because one thing that I have learned in scripture is how anthropocentric God is. God is so for human beings, it's not that funny. And if we have that, you know, in the foreground as we do our theology in church or academy, rather than God, maybe this is blasphemy. If we have that, God's heart for humans as we do this, I think we'll be closer to a theology. <laughs> God's own in our logic <laughs> than what we are doing now, which Bart calls the anthropology. Hmm. What a delight it was to talk with you, Professor Akaladze. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. So this is your host, Amy Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Reverend Professor Esther Akaladze, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and World Christianity at Knox College, University of Toronto, Canada. She has written Powers, Principalities, and the Spirit, Biblical Realism in Africa and the West, published by Erdman's. You can find a link to this book on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.